and this court will be adjourned until the jury's verdict is reached. The rampage in Parliament finally ending when Sergeant-at-Arms Kevin Vickers shoots and kills the gunman. Tonight, ABC this News... This is the man who stopped him. Sergeant-at-Arms Kevin Vickers, seen here walking through Parliament with a gun after shooting dead the attack. Heroes welcome for the man who protected Parliament in Ottawa as the chamber reopened. Sergeant-at-Arms Kevin Vickers was honoured for downing a gunman who terrorised the capital on Wednesday. Kevin Vickers proved to be the right man, at the right place, at the right time. He didn't act alone that morning. He's quick to point out that his actions, his bullets, were only a piece of the targeted effort by the RCMP and parliamentary security officers to stop Bebo before he could take any more lives or cause any further terror. That morning, Kevin walked from his office straight into the history books. Within hours, he became a household name, the sergeant at arms, taking up arms against a terrorist threat. As he tells it, he then coolly returned to his office, reloaded his now empty magazine, checked in on the well-being of his staff and the various clerks of the House of Commons, before checking on the Prime Minister and the Conservative caucus, literally calm under fire. It's cool and overcast here in Vancouver. This is episode five, part two, with former Sergeant-at-Arms Kevin Vickers. I'm Dan Coles, and this is Under Reserve. So let's talk about House of Commons security. In 2005, who are the security guards or officers on Parliament Hill? Who are, who are these men and women? On the outside of the building, of course, it's uh, all, all RCMP. Inside the building, uh, inside the parliamentary precinct, uh, it, they are, uh, you know, I had a team, Dan, of uh, I think it was 180, a little over 200 people uh, that, uh, we trained ourselves. Uh, all their training uh, that uh, they take for that role is given by the House of Commons. Our trainers uh, take the same training courses as do the RCMP trainers in Regina. So for self-defense, uh, for firearms training, um, all, all that, what our instructors in Regina courses that they take our instructors then at the House of Commons, they would take as well. Uh, they would be part of those teams that, uh, you know, like for firearms instructors or self-defense instructors, uh, our people in the House of Commons would, would, would take those courses. And then and is this done at a local years, college or is there an on-site training facility or, or how? No, they would fly. With, uh, a lot of them, uh, some would be trained at the, uh, at the police college. Uh, our instructors, that is. Yes. Uh, and then uh, a number of them would also fly out to Regina uh, to partake in whatever instructing courses the RCMP instructors uh, uh, would take. Uh, they would take it there. The actual training for our, our people, uh, Dan, was done right there at the House of Commons. We had a, a training facility, mm. and uh, they would they would take all those courses uh, right right then and there. Uh, you know, there's much less training involved uh, than, you know, you would typically get. I'm, and, uh, you know, if, I remember way back in the day, the RCMP, it was like, you know, there's no fate worse than being posted to, to Parliament Hill. It was guarding the tulips was right. the, 
<laughs> was, was the phrase of the day. But so, you know, these are static security positions, and uh, they, you know, can become quite monotonous. But uh, you know, we've had good people. You know, we had we had great people, in fact. And uh, as uh, when I was there, noticeably, uh, much like the RCMP, I'm sure, uh, more and more uh, individuals with university degrees or you know secondary uh, education. So, are these men and women who want to pursue? A career in policing. I mean, are are they peace officers? The armed guards and probably no, they're not. Uh, they were they were not peace officers. Uh, you know, they were just members of the House of Commons. And the biggest thing behind all this, Dan, is that they are, and we all employees of the House of Commons are trained to be totally nonpartisan um, in in every sense of sense of the word. So that we have an independent independent group of security that was totally independent from the executive branch of government. And by the executive branch of government, I mean the prime minister and cabinet ministers. And of course, cabinet, you have the minister of public safety, who the RCMP report to. So they have a, I don't want to say political master, but they report to the political uh, machine. What the House of Commons was completely independent totally independent of anything to do with the executive branch. And, you know, in security, uh, you know, we would train them, you know, treat Elizabeth May, uh, the head of the Green Party at the time from, from British Columbia, the exact same way as you treat Prime Minister Harper. They are members of Parliament, and that is it. So there are total, you know, everything they do, uh, is totally, totally neutral. And I can give you some examples. You know, I remember senior uh, members of cabinet uh, leaving very vital documents behind, like they'd go into a caucus meeting or whatever. The House of Commons took, you know, great regret that those would never be touched. They would be sealed and given back directly, you know, to the minister in question, where, you know, to avoid any chance or any conflict of anyone else learning of uh, the contents of those documents and or using those documents for any political purpose. And little things, Dan, like just the House of Commons being what it is, uh, you could have a couple of cabinet ministers coming down an elevator with a security member steps on and overhears conversations about government policy or a government plan and you know we insist and train that that goes nowhere that that conversation did not take place where uh, you know I'll put that by my RCMP hat on that I'm a Mountie and that I overhear on a conversation about the legalization of marijuana there's a good chance I'm going to report back to my boss uh, the commissioner of the RCMP or to whoever I report to of the conversation I overheard about government policy. So we've really sacrosanct this nonpartisanship that, that uh, it was center of, our, uh, of the training for our House of Commons members. You mentioned the precinct that's going to be relevant a little later on. C- can you lay out, we've got the outside of the, of the structures of Parliament who police is there? I think you mentioned you got House of Commons security on the inside. 
What about the streets? What about the roofs? Can, can you lay that out for us? Well, the parliamentary precinct is everything inside the building. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been speakers' rulings that the, the precinct actually ends at the doorstep of the parliament buildings that are, that are, that are involved. And, um, uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned uh, the roof of the buildings because back in 2010 when I was there, uh, one night we had Greenpeace come in and uh, they actually uh, uh, approached members of the RCMP outside and uh, very beautiful ladies engaged in conversation with, with, with the RCMP officers stationed in their cars outside the buildings and the back uh, Greenpeace protesters were climbing onto the roof of the parliament buildings and uh, the next morning, all hell broke loose when these monster Greenpeace flags were wrapped all across the face of our, our parliament buildings and, of course, uh, seen as a real breach of security. And so there's a, there was a real argument as to, well, who has control of the roof of the building? Who's, who's responsible for security of the building? Is it the RCMP on the outside or House of Commons security on the inside? And, uh, it was both you know, type of unique issues, and we eventually uh, agreed that it was actually both who would be mm. responsible for the, the security of the, of the roofs of the building. But everything on the inside at the time yes. uh, was by, it was the responsibility of the House of Commons. In fact, um, uh, so there would be no uh, hesitation whatsoever other than the, the Prime Minister's uh, security detail, any police officer that came in the House of Commons, his weapon was was taken from him and and secured in a, in a secure lockbox uh, situation. So there was no possibility that inside the precinct, the powers given to a peace officer, the executive officer, would be any chance of those powers being executed within inside the parliamentary precinct. Is this a historic concern to, to prevent a, a, a coup by the executive branch? I mean, that's that's a, a fascinating step that, you know, Mounties who are who are protecting and patrolling the building on the outside notionally lose certainly the, you know, some of their enforcement tools when they step inside. Uh, and this goes right back to our West parliamentary system. Right. Uh, and it goes way back to the 13th century. Um, uh, Edward I, uh, who had sent his uh, soldiers down or whoever, uh, he had disagreed. It was one of the first sittings of, of Parliament in, in uh, England. And uh, the king sent his men down because he was determined that he was going to behead five parliamentarians who were critical or whatever, and um, they were met uh, by, at the time, one of the first sergeant-at-arms whose duty it was to protect the independence of the House of Commons from the king and uh, stopped the king's men from coming in the building. And uh, so you'll hear that expression, actually, speakers referring to police officers coming into the building as, at the time... uh, as the king's men, mm. uh, they're they're there working for 
the executive branch uh, or associated with the executive branch uh, of, of, uh, of government. So that's where that all comes from. You didn't stay head of House of Commons Security for long, though. I was, uh, Dan, I was there just uh, a little over a year. Um, and my predecessor, um, Gus Cloutier was his name, had terminal cancer. I never did meet the man, and he passed away. And Prime Minister Harper had just been elected as uh, Prime Minister. The Conservatives won that election in 2006. Right. And uh, he uh, decided, uh, in consultation with the Speaker and the Clerk, to have a competitive process, and they invited uh, five or six of us, uh, six people, uh, to have interviews. I was selected, I guess, because I was then the Director of Security at the House. And uh, we went over to, were invited to go to Longman Block, where uh, we were interviewed by uh, the director of the prime minister's uh, senior appointments, um, it's quite a quite a process. It would be the same interviews, place and people that would interview for the chief of defense staff, commissioner of the RCMP. Uh, you know, the heads of crown corporations uh, would be there. You know, all would go to that same place and meet those same people uh, for the interview and. Dan, the interview consisted of a typical, you know, executive-style interview. They were looking for performance measurement, uh, performance management, uh, priorities. Uh, all the questions were structured uh, at that level. Uh, the, the sergeant at arms position, Dan, looks after all the operations of the House of Commons that support the running of Parliament. Um, that position uh, looks after the renovations of the buildings, uh, security, building services, food services, and the, the National Press Gallery also uh, reports or looks looked after by the, the, the Sergeant at Arms. So there's 1,200 employees there, four different unions, uh, and a budget of $59 million. to give you an idea of the scope of uh, of, of uh, the management role there as, as Sergeant at Arms. But it's a big budget for a former police officer to administer. It was. Um, you know, you know, it would be very similar probably to a commanding officer of, of the RCMP in any given province as far as, uh, you know, employees and, and overall overall budget uh, goes. But, given, uh, given the name of the position, Kevin, it it sounds like Historically, anyway, it was a it was a properly a security position. Is that right? It was in, in its first role. It was there. It was to uh, protect Parliament and protect the independence of Parliament, and uh, to bring in uh, to bring in the Mason uh, and and to uh, you know ensure that the traditions, the roles, and the traditions of the House are not. Uh, are not inter- interfered with. And Dan, I think I mentioned this before, I, the last question at the interview, uh, they asked me, uh, Mr. Vickers, why do you want to become the sergeant at arms? And I responded to them, Dan, that I had an aunt who taught me poetry. Her name was Anne Marie. And here I am at this 
big interview board uh, in Longevin Block, and they're all starting to look at one another, and I said, she taught me poetry, and one of the poems that, that she taught me was from Robert Frost. And I said, you know, when I first came down here, I saw a father and her son playing frisbee on the lawns of Parliament Hill. And I fell in love with the place, and I always wanted to protect it. And I said, oh, I'll never forget this poem. And I started, and I, I, I recited the poem to them, and Mending wall, and I said, you know, something there is that does not love a wall that sends the frozen ground swell up under it. Before I built a wall, I would ask what I was walling in, what I was walling out, and to whom I'd likely give offense. Something there is that does not love a wall that wants it down. And I said, if you people make me a sergeant at arms, there'll be no walls built around our parliament buildings. I stopped and I looked around and a few of them had tears in their eyes and I said to myself, yes, <laughs> I have this job. Huh. And I was the first one interviewed that day, but I knew, I knew that I had the, I had the job as, as sergeant at arms and uh, what, a, what a tremendous privilege it was. Uh, I was, became the ninth sergeant at arms. Uh, there, were, there were, up until my time, there was only eight sergeant at arms since uh, Confederation. Incredible. And, uh, it was a it was a position that I truly truly loved, and uh, I, I I I really do miss the House of Commons, and I I miss my employees, the employees that were there. Uh, it was uh, certainly the greatest time of my life. Originally, it was a security position, and and certainly in October 2014, you found yourself doing some security, but. You know, based on on what you mentioned earlier, this has become largely an administrative position. Is that right? It was. Now that they've changed uh, since since the incident, October fourteenth, they've changed uh, that role drastically. Yeah. Um, it does still have a, a, from my understanding now, and I, I stand to be corrected. Um, it's more of like on a corporate security side that the, the sergeant uh, now plays with security under the purview of uh, the, the security at the House of Commons who work there in conjunction with uh, the RCMP. So uh, uh, at the time, uh, as I say, it, it, it did have a, a real security component to it, uh, less, so, less so today. How old are you in, in October of 2014? Um, I was just... Uh, at, the, at the time, uh, 2014, yeah, I would I would have been uh, 54, I guess. Uh, yeah, I would have been uh, 53 years of age. Always kept myself in um, good physical shape, Dan. I, I continue to do so. Uh, back then, I you know I ran every day, um, and I always uh, did this. Throughout my management career, both in the RCMP and and when I as director of security and has come as involved myself uh, with actual operations, uh, I had a janitorial uniform, uh, janitorial services uniform. Uh, I'd always try to get a day or two in it with the folks uh, doing janitorial services at the house. 
Uh, I go up and work with food services. Uh, I would always go out and uh, be with the security guys uh, once or twice a month. Uh, so I, I really kept myself involved in the day-to-day operations and, and uh, be with and learn firsthand how, how the challenges that staff uh, that staff uh, encountered and, and working there. And were you still attending the range from time to time, keeping up your firearm skills? Absolutely. Uh, we all the members of the House of Commons that did carry firearms. Um, we qualified twice a year, Dan, and uh, I always qualified, and that was uh, something that uh, you know I've, I've done throughout my policing career. Of course, uh, was, was uh, qualifying and. There's no different at the house as director of security and then as sergeant at arms. I kept myself uh, qualified with uh, with my firearm. So the morning of October 22, 2014, that's, I guess, when you woke up, just a, just another day. It was, uh, Dan, but um, just around that time, uh, there was a heightened, uh, heightened security, uh, you know, say across the nation, but... Uh, just a, a few days before that, uh, there was a Quebec uh, Army uh, service guy that uh, was killed in, in the province of Quebec. Right. Uh, that was considered terrorist-related. And then, uh, so we were, you know, we were buzzing, and the security posture at the time at the House of Commons, then, uh, you know, we, we did it on a threat risk assessment. Every morning we would have phone calls with, the local, you know, police forces, the local jurisdiction, Ottawa City Police, uh, Gatineau City Police, uh, the RCMP, and CSIS. Uh, so we always tried to have a, uh, you know, establish a, a given threat level at, at any day of the week, and it would have been heightened at that time due to that uh, uh, the death of the, the services guy in in Quebec. Uh, I, I, but I do recall at our morning meeting that time, uh, our, the then director of security, we were we were uh, talking openly about uh, threats in Canada at that time and and uh, and terrorism, but uh, not to you know not overly so. But our and our security posture was always based on that threat, Dan. So. Um, we would have a number of plainclothes officers at the House of Commons trained in firearms that wearing civilian clothing would be armed, and their numbers would be adjusted based on the given threat uh, level that we were we were we were at the security posture of the building. So uh, there would have been more plainclothes guys and, and gals working at that around that period of time. Uh, in uh, civilian clothing, wearing firearms uh, versus uh, uniform, uh, you know, the number of uniform guys or gals that... that uh, and these are parliamentary uh, security officers you're speaking about? Exactly, exactly. And uh, and that was it. So, uh, yeah, so after that meeting, I came back to my own office and uh, I was just speaking with uh, some of my administrative staff there and that's when I heard uh, undoubtedly in my mind uh, fire 
gunshots being fired, yeah. You, you, I, I suppose word had it made it to your office that uh, Nathan Cirillo had just been shot. That happened too quickly. That happened so, so quickly, yeah. He was, he, uh, that happened, and, he, and he, of course, it was just minutes later that uh, he ran from the war memorial, which is just off the grounds of of, of the Parliament buildings and center block, and I believe most of your listeners would recall he just kept running and ran uh, right up uh, past uh, the, the Senate building and right up to the House of Commons. And he came in the door of the House of Commons. We had a wonderful young man there, a uh, tall, handsome boy, Samuel Sun is his name. He's originally from Singapore. But Samuel grabbed him uh, and they struggled with his rifle. And uh, back and forth all the time, Samuel was roaring at, at, at the top of his voice, gun, gun, gun. And the, the gun actually discharged, uh, the bullet hitting the floor and then up into Samuel's leg. And uh, he fell, he fell to the, he fell to the floor. Uh, and it would have been that first shot that I would have heard uh, in my, in my office. Where's your office in relation to the front door? It would be, you know, a good 50 yards right down the Hall of Honor, um, and just before you get to go into what's called the Parliamentary Library, and just off to the right of, of the Hall of, of the of the Hall of Honor. Uh, Vivo then took the weapon. Then there was another security guy there uh, with uh, Samuel's son, and pointed the gun directly at him. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, he didn't shoot the. He didn't, and thankfully, uh, didn't shoot the uh, other security guy, the uh, common security guy that was working there with him. And within seven seconds, though, he turned and he would walk. He'd be running up the steps uh, from the front entrance into what's called the rotunda, which is the top of uh, the Hall of Honor. Uh, we had three uh, plainclothes security guys there um, and they started shooting uh, the moment he came up uh, running the steps. So within seven seconds of him entering the building, he would have been shot uh, by our uh, House of Commons uh, security guy. And I don't know the reasons why this is not never became public, but there's a, we had security cameras there, so the actual what took place is actually video recorded, and um, you can see him as he gets to the top of the stairs, the rotunda. He turns. There's a, a guy there now who works for CSIS, uh, but he worked, worked for us at the time, Max Malo, and uh, he turns and shoots at Max, and the bullet. Uh, you can see striking a, a marble column pillar that, that at the top of the, of the rotunda that uh, Max is standing by, and it just misses Max and hits behind Max, and you can see the, the scattering of dust and, and uh, the pieces of the marble column. But Max is returning fire, and you can see on the video uh, the guy jol- jol- jolting back, uh, having been hit, uh, by by uh, by Max's uh, Max's bullets, yeah. And you're and you're you're in and around your office, and you're you're hearing all of this, and then you immediately recognize it as gunshots. Yeah, and when I first heard the first gunshot uh, that day, I wasn't wearing my weapon. I, I had a 
large uh, office uh, there at the House of Commons, and it's divided into different par- parts. And in my back office, I had my own uh, pistol uh, stored in lockboxes. So after I heard the first shot, I ran, and I was actually unlocking my gun when these other shots would have been transpiring between Max and the plainclothes guys and and Bebo at the, at the time. So I got my gun, and by this time, uh, I came out of my office, but by this time he had run up the Hall of Honor towards my office, towards the, the uh, parliamentary library, and he encountered a constable, a turno, um, and the constable turno shot several shots at him. We know one of his shots hit uh, Bebo as well because it was identified later, found in the palm, uh, of, of Bebo's hand, so he would have been wounded, uh, shot, shot in, shot in the hand. He's wearing a large coat uh, at the time, and for the life of me, I still can't account for today the number of bullets that this Bebo was hit with, how he was able to continue to to, to run. But when I came out of my office, Dan Constable Turner was still uh, stationed where he was, which was in front of the door of a caucus room where. The Prime Minister and the Conservative Party were actually in caucus, having their, their caucus meeting. When I came out of my door, Letourneau uh, pointed to me that where people had hidden themselves behind a pillar just at the very uh, south end of the, uh, or east end of the Hall of Honor, just outside the Parliament door. When I looked over, I could see the barrel of his gun extended from that uh, pillar, so I immediately ran up to the pillar with Bebo being on one side of the pillar and myself being on the other. And at that time, Dan, uh, I could hear him breathing, and uh, it was a sound that I'll never forget my, for the rest of my life, but it was, you could really, he really had this labored breathing, uh, which told me that he had been seriously wounded. Um, but, it, you know, it was a real ugly, horrible, horrible sound uh, that he was, that he, in the manner in which he breathed. And it would have been about a minute and 20-odd seconds because four RCMP officers by this time had come into the building, and they were at the foot of the rotunda. Um, they came in and uh, took a view of the scene of what was, was transpiring. They were there for, I believe, it was a minute and 23 seconds or a minute and 27 seconds, and then they, the four CMP officers, would have been proceeding down the hall where I was on one side of the pillar and Bebo on the other side of the pillar. And one of the other things that you know I remember uh, trying to find out exactly what, you know what he was up to or what he's doing, and having my head just slightly extended around the pillar and him redrawing his head. So. We just missed seeing one another. It was just I just saw that like the shadow of the head moving back in behind behind the pillar. But as these four RCMP officers moved towards us and, and got quite close to us, uh, Bebo shot and fired his weapon. And the moment he shot and fired his weapon, I dove literally through the air. I shot him once, and I remember. It would have been to his chest, 
and hearing this loud uh, noise from him, he went, Ooh! and I fell directly, directly at his feet. And I remember looking still, he was still standing uh, and reaching up with my revolver and starting to fire my weapon. And then uh, I wouldn't have witnessed this, but the RCMP officers would have started discharging their weapon or weapons as well at, at that same time. And, and he literally fell right down, not on top of me, but right beside me uh, as I was shooting. And I remember pushing myself back on my bum with my feet, pushing myself away from him um, as he uh, now on the floor and he was still moving and towards me. And I remember pushing myself back, as I say, on my bum with my feet. And then he came back, and then he turned uh, almost uh, like a half turn towards the, the parliament door, door, and he was, he was face down. Um, and again, uh, the RCMP officers, they continued, or officer continued to, to shoot him uh, right there. And it ended, uh, it ended him, it ended him with me. I was literally next to his body, like my feet and my legs were next to his body as he was uh, laying on the floor. And the, I, I recall the RCMP officer helping, helping me to my feet. And uh, that was that. I, I've, I've read in, in news reporting, and admittedly from years ago, that you were described as just being incredibly calm and collected I mean, you I mean you tell me you know after you're helped up from from the ground by a, an RCMP officer, um, you head to the caucus rooms. Uh, I immediately went. Uh, to, uh, just I, I tell you what I immediately did. And I, have a, I have no idea why I did this. I went right back to my office. Uh, I spent it. I shot all my rounds uh, at the individual and literally arms length. Like this wasn't. My gun was literally touching him at all times as I as I as I was shooting, but I expended all 15 of my bullets, and for whatever reason, uh, uh, I went back and got uh, ammunition and reloaded my gun. And uh, I mean, you don't you out. don't know what's coming next, I suppose, at the moment. Well, you know, I guess that was it. You know, and then re- there were reports of. Uh, possible other people seen on top of the building and it was uh you know it was wild after that you know there were rumors of, of other people being there it, as it turned out there wasn't anyone there but so i the two uh my secretarial staff uh, that were there administrative staff that were there i got them to stay in the back room of my office and then i went over on the other side of the hall of honors the actual clerk of the house of commons and she has a large administrative staff, so I reassured them and checked that they were okay. And then all the clerks that would uh, that sit at the table in the House of Commons, they meet once in the morning. Um, so I went down, and that, the acting clerk, uh, Mark Boff, would be his name, uh, went down to inform him what had just transpired and make sure that they were they were uh, secured. And I remember taking one of the mail clerks up to the clerk's uh, office up on the main floor, right, you know, right next where the incident happened, just to be there with the other uh, staff to reassure them that uh, some degree of safety or, or, or whatever. 
um, then, you know, I remember getting security and, and uh, we, we went into a bit of a pro- protocol to make sure verifying all the rooms and hallways, there was no other uh, people in the building that weren't supposed to be in the building. Um, and then I believe it would, it would be around the 10-minute mark, I would have went in uh, to check on the Prime Minister and uh, the Conservative caucus. In your in your entire policing career that spanned three decades, had you ever experienced what um, I expect would be would be just pandemonium like this? That was that was that. But you know, uh, up north, as I mentioned, uh, Fort Ray, Northwest Territories, um, it would be not uncommon to get gun complaints or firearms being discharged complaints. So. That experience, you know, I had in the past, and I recall, you know, there was a gentleman up north, Edward Washi was his name. Uh, Edward would get drunk on usually on a Friday night, and uh, I do, you know, recall going to his residence and looking around the the porch of the front porch of his residence, and he having a firearm extended out through the window of the residents in Fort Ray and the gun discharging. So the experience of being around incidences where firearms were used, uh, I certainly had that from the north. Uh, you know, that experience, uh, and, and uh, you know, to, to tell you the truth, like, you know, to, to, when I first walked out of my office and saw the extended firearm uh, from that pillar, uh, you know, I don't believe I thought about it at the time, but you know, it'd be very similar to being at Edward Washi's house in Fort Ray, uh, witnessing uh, his hunting rifle out uh, out the window of his home and him discharging, same as him being intoxicated. In, in the in the conversations that would have followed in the the hours and days afterwards, ha- had anyone expected you to be in a position to respond in the way that you did, whether it, by way of the firearm or the training or your your coolness under under pressure. Well, I you know all the staff, of course, security staff. I trained with them, so they you know they knew that I was you know I had the competencies to to uh, have a firearm and to use a firearm. And my boss, uh, Audrey O'Brien, who was the clerk of the House of Commons, of course, she knew from time to time. And I seldom wore my uh, firearm, but on I mentioned to you earlier, if we had a uh, did the threat risk assessment and, and the security posture was elevated, I would wear my firearm on those days uh, in response to that threat level that we were concerned about. Um, you know, there'd be such things as we would get a, uh, you know, comes to mind as a, you know, a message from the Ontario Provincial Police that uh, a guy was missing out of Dryden, Ontario, who had made threats both the Prime Minister and uh, believed to have a firearm in his possession. Uh, on route to Ottawa, you know, the police would have him on observation, his vehicle registration, but not yet arrested or, or stopped by the police. We, incidents like that, that would occur not uncommon. Um, on days such as that, I would I would have my firearm in, in the event that uh, an individual was able to get by police on the outside and, and come into, into the building. It's fair to say this event changed the course of your life. Oh, for sure. Uh, it 
it, it was it was you know uh, I look back you know it's all kind of uh, kind of uh, surreal. I, I I tell the story you know that night uh, when I finally did get home, I woke up at five thirty in the morning and uh, I was crying and uh, you know I I, I use the term as the loneliest moment of my life. Uh, but about an hour or so later, my mother called here from New Brunswick, and uh, she asked me if I was all right. And, uh, of course, I lied and said, Mom, I'm fine. And she said, well, I think you should come home, Kevin. And I, I said, Mom, uh, you know, I'm fine, and went into Parliament that day. And, of course, that was broadcast around the world, and, and uh, you know, your life is forever changed for sure. But, the next morning, my my mother calls the same same time. Kevin, I I think you should come home. And I said, Mom, look at everything's okay. I'm I'm okay. But this Friday morning, she she calls again. She says, Well, what about your son Andrew? And Andrew's a a police officer. And one of the things that I you know that that really struck me. Uh, And I get emotional. Uh, Take your time. Andrew had uh, our granddaughter, Reese. She was in grade one. Uh, hours after the, the incident in Ottawa, of course, Armistice City Police, Newcastle City Police down here, far away, wanting to do something, but not, not knowing what to do. They... Uh, they sent a patrol car and had officers stationed at the door of uh, Reese's school, her elementary school. So, yeah, that uh, that uh, certainly stays with you. And going back to my story, the Saturday morning, uh, my mother calls, and she always calls me. I have two names, Kevin Michael. And so on Saturday morning, she called. She said, "Kevin Michael, I want you home." And so uh, I uh, called uh, the clerk and said, "Look, I I, I got to go home to New Brunswick." So uh, away I went. And um, about four o'clock in the morning, I was traveling across the Plaster Rock News Highway, which is a very forlorn road here, and. Uh, I thought of uh, uh, those men that we were talking about earlier who um, had taken confessions from Dan. Yeah. And uh, I thought of a thing, and I said, well, I get home. Um, I've, our family is very Catholic, and uh, I, I have lots of relatives who are priests and aunts who are nuns and sisters. And So anyway, uh, I got home, and I called our family priest, Father Leon Creamer and I said, Father, you come up and say mass up here at my log home, and he said, Kevin, we'll we'll, uh, we'll be right up. Or he, he would come up that morning, and uh, I called my daughter Laura, uh, who lives about an hour south of here, and uh, she was up breastfeeding my four-week-old grandson. 
and uh, she said, Dad will come. And then I phoned my father and some sisters in St. John, who were religious nuns, uh, religious sisters, and uh, they said, Kevin, we're coming. And so uh, 10 o'clock that morning, uh, my mother came, and our family came, and Father Leon Beaver came, and we had uh, family mass. And uh, afterwards, I walked out here down to the river where I fly fish for salmon here and uh, said to myself, you know, my mother was right. I, I needed to come home. And uh, that was that. Was that. And, uh, you know, I, I stayed home this year for a few days. And uh, one of the things I laugh about is the comedy here. I was undressing and my wife, Anne, who lived here in New Brunswick at the time, and I was taking my clothes off. And she said, good God, Kevin, what's wrong with your bum? And uh, I said, what are you talking about? She says, come here. And so I went to a mirror, and my bum was completely black, like black. And what that would have been is when I dove in front of the suspect and <laughs> fell to the floor, the, you know, the, the terrace, the uh, granite floor in the apartment building, I uh, would have hit with such a thud, uh, my entitled t- total uh, behind, my, my total bum was totally black, and I had no idea. Mm. <laughs> you know, the day is living yourself that I had done, I had done that to myself. But anyway, that was a bit of a bit of humor there. Uh, and uh, you know, I went back to Ottawa and uh, uh, started my duties as sergeant uh, that following week again. Do they do they repair the bullet holes, the damage, or, or is that still visible today? Do you know? No, and uh, uh, I believe you know. I remember the time uh, there was a journalist that came in, and because uh, our members of security had mentioned that there were there were there was bullet holes there, but uh, about a year prior, uh, there had been paintings on the wall, and they the holes were that. The fixtures that were holding those paintings up had been removed, but and and filled, and uh, so that was his mistake when he did his reporting that bullet holes and was, <laughs> those were there previously from from pictures, but down along where I was and uh, from the floor uh, shooting directly at him, it would have been the the south wall actually. Um, and where they, where he fell, there were glances of bullets. You can see where bullets had been uh, t- had taken necks out of the out of the out of the, out of the wall, but not holes per se. Mm-hmm. The, you know the concrete walls or the walls of um, Parliament uh, in that area. They're actually, I, I believe, it's limestone from Manitoba that they're they're they constructed from. But if, if I Believe it, uh, in particular along that side, there would, there would be like a, a granite base to them there as well, and there you can see the nicks. The, the uh, RCMP uh, identification service guys that came and, and did the scene afterwards, they were able to establish a, a couple of those nicks where where bullets would have hit. You uh, you go back to work, and, and I guess you. You resume your role as sergeant at arms, but you're not long for that post after this event. No, and uh, you know, 
uh, it became quite untenable. Like, you know, just the, the variety of the event and, uh, you know, there's a very, you know, pecking order at the House. You know, you have the leaders of the parties, the Prime Minister, the leaders of uh, opposition parties, the Speaker of the House, uh, the Clerk of the House. Uh, they all, uh, you know, enjoy a, a certain status being there at the House of Commons and the, the sergeant at arms is uh, quite removed from from that group, and uh, but you know I I couldn't go outside the door. Members of public wanting coming up to, to me. Uh, you go, went to a, a government committee meeting where the speaker should have you know be the one that uh, is receiving the attention and or the center of attention. Uh, they weren't, so I knew that was going to be an issue, and then. Uh, about a week and a half later after that again uh, Francois Hollande uh, the president of France came and uh, we always had a ceremonial welcoming committee to meet any head of state and I recall Francois Hollande arriving and uh, we're all lined up there again in order of precedence uh, the prime minister and the two speakers the speaker of the senate the speaker of the house the clerk of the senate the clerk of the house uh, the usher of the block rod, and I'm at the end of the line, and uh, uh, he walked by everybody and came over and asked if he could have his photo taken with me. And <laughs> so I, I, I knew then that you know this is just not this is just not going to be tenable. So it wasn't long after that, uh, several days after that, the young uh, Ray Novak, who's the prime minister's uh, chief of staff at the time, knocked on my door and. Mr. Vickers, uh, Prime Minister is thinking that perhaps it would be suitable for you to receive, uh, you know, uh, recognition for for your for your service, and we were wondering if you'd be interested in a diplomatic posting. And, uh, you know, I was quite taken aback, but you know, you know, we have a number of places opened, and uh, one uh, that he went through with me. me a few places, and he says, and, and the ambassador of Ireland. I, again, I just kind of gobsmacked my family on both sides. Where, where we are ancestors of, of Irish Irish ancestry, and uh, from from Ireland originally. So it's, uh, Ireland sounds wonderful, and uh, I said, sure, I'd be interested in very, very interested in becoming. Ambassador of Canada for Ireland. And the way he went, and uh, it, you know, it wasn't uh, a couple of days later they came back and said, "Yeah, you have a job. You're going to become ambassador of Canada in Ireland." And uh, again, uh, what a privilege! What a what a dream job that was as well. This is a posting that uh, your wife Anne was okay with, I imagine. Yeah, Anne and I. Uh, you know, we have a great marriage. We've <laughs> we've lived apart almost all our lives. Uh, even in Ottawa, I was in Ottawa for uh, you know from 2003 to you know uh, 11 years, I guess. I lived up there by myself, but always came home. And has uh, a small home and in, in, uh, lives in her parents' home, who who passed away. And uh, I have uh, this this log home here, so. Uh, going to Ireland, that that didn't change things. Uh, she remained uh, here in, in 
Newcastle and uh, Ramersheet and away I went to Ireland and uh, and as I did in Ireland in, in Ottawa, usually home uh, three four times a year. You know, Christmas and Easter and summer vacation and usually Thanksgiving. I think was my usual time to get back home. Kevin, your time as ambassador, and I know you moved into politics. I mean, that's a whole other chapter in your life that um, is, is probably best saved for another day. I enjoyed speaking with you, Daniel. I yeah. say, excuse me for being a little bit emotional there, but uh, you, you, you touched a nerve. <laughs> oh, it's it, it's incredible stuff. Um, look, thank you for your time today. Uh, thank you for your service both in the RCMP um, and to Parliament. You know, you've been gracious. You've been informative. I um, do wish you good health and all the best, and um, and maybe one of these days we'll reconvene to uh, to hear about the the next chapter in in Ireland and and in provincial politics. Well, Dad, you've been very good, and uh, once again, thank you for your kind invitation, and uh, God bless everybody. If you're not doing so already, uh, please consider subscribing to the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasting content, or follow along on Instagram. I say that because we've got an action-packed docket for the rest of the month. I'm going to sit down with a couple fellows from the RCMP emergency response team. And then later in the month, I've got interviews lined up with two senior members of the criminal defense bar. We've also got our first order of morale patches in the mail, courtesy of our good friends at Line of Fire Defense Systems in Edmonton, Alberta. But that's all for next time. Until then, we're under reserve.